The text for this morning's sermon is 1 Timothy chapter 4, which we have already read together. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you're going to compete in the Olympics, you need to train, and you need to train hard. You can't sit around eating potato chips and watching TV as the weeks go by and as the Olympics draw near. You need to have a strict regimen of diet and exercise and training, and you, and you can't be distracted with all kinds of other things because otherwise you won't be able to run the race. Now, the scriptures often use, and the Apostle Paul often uses, that kind of a picture to describe the Christian life. Christians are called to run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And now, as, we're, as you read through Timothy, which is a letter of Paul written to a missionary in the area of Ephesus, Timothy was a young missionary who was supporting churches and church plants around that area. Paul consistently through this letter reminds Timothy to stay focused on his task, to not be distracted, to fight the good fight of faith, to keep the mean thing the mean thing. And as we read through this chapter, chapter 4, you will have noticed a lot of words having to do with training and practicing and, and focusing and toiling and striving and, and trying to make progress. In the face of all difficulties and distractions, the church is called to train hard in godliness. And as the church trains in godliness and grows in the Lord Jesus Christ, God uses that to bring the gospel of sovereign grace, sovereign saving grace to the world. And so the striving in the scriptures, the striving also in our chapter, in our text, is not the striving of works. It is the striving of faith. It is not the striving of the flesh, but it is the striving in the spirit, in the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, and because that's who it's all about. You notice we read the little bit at the end there of chapter 3, where there's kind of an old, uh, an ancient creed or confession embedded here in the chapter about the Lord Jesus, about who he is and what he has done. That, says the apostle, is the mystery of godliness, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not us, not our work, but him and his work. And so godliness is to, to love him and to, to be like him, to know him to follow him, to love him, to worship him, to be transformed by the power of the Spirit of God from glory to glory after the likeness of the Son of God. That's the focus of the Christian life. That's the focus of the Christian message. And any other focus, any other teaching is, says Paul in the first verse here of our chapter, is deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Now, as we go through this chapter, it will be easier for you to follow the sermon if you have the chapter in front of you, because I'll be following it fairly closely. Any other focus, then, is deceitful spirits and, and teaching of demons. These are high stakes here. It is either Christ 
and his word which bring life, or it's anything else which brings death. Out there is every false religion and philosophy, deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And that doesn't mean to say that that people outside of Christ are necessarily wearing little horns and, and look like devils. Sometimes it can be the sweet old grandma down the street that's spending all of her time working to support the local abortion clinic or to promote the wickedness of abortion. The fact is, is that anything opposed to the gospel of Christ is demonic deceit. And, and we can expect that in the world, in those who are in darkness, who do not know and have never known the Lord Jesus as they hate Live, they live hating one another and being hated as they embrace the culture and the cult of death. But the apostle in our text is speaking about people who have known better. They've known the gospel. Now, Timothy's working in the area of Ephesus, and Paul, in another place in Scripture, addresses the Ephesian elders. If you turn in your Bible to to Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. You see that in verse 17, he calls from Miletus to Ephesus and calls the elders of the church. So he's speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. This is where Timothy is working now later. And there in Acts 20, verse 29, this is what he prophesies in the spirit. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From among your own selves. And now in our chapter, the apostle reminds Timothy of this prophecy. He says, the spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. And that's the most dangerous and vile type of deceitful spirit and teaching of demons, the the stuff that comes out of the very body of Christ itself when people are perverting the gospel into something else. And you see he lists there in verses 2 through to uh, 5, especially in verse 3, he lists what the problems are in his specific situation there in the area of Ephesus. There are people that have come up with all kinds of ideas about how to be a good Christian and how to please God. And they have come up with all kinds of rules that you ought not to get married, that you ought to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. And so they're coming up with all kinds of rules and they're making, trying to make the church into some kind of a cult where if you just check off this box and this box and this box, if you don't do this and you don't do that and you don't do that and you don't do that, then you're a good Christian. And Paul says, this is deceitful and the teachings of demons. And he makes a contrast between this kind of false teaching and the goodness of God in creation. And he repeats that several times. Look there in verse 3. God created foods to be received with thanksgiving. And then verse 4 again. 
everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And so Christianity, says Paul, is not a whole list of rules about all the things you're not supposed to do to be a good person, but Christianity, on the, on the contrary, is a delight in the goodness of God, in the creation of God, in the salvation of God, in the providence of God, in the provision of God. Christianity is positively rejoicing in the Lord and in all of his gifts. And that's a far cry from the stuff that these legalists were pushing. Now, in that time, the problem was these legalists coming up with all kinds of rules about what you're not supposed to do. But in our time, we see the opposite. In our time, we see a different type of deceitful spirit and teachings of demons. We certainly have the legalists, but we also have people who, in the name of Christianity, would command us and compel us to celebrate things that the Lord has forbidden. Just recently, for instance, the Church of Sweden declared itself a church which is also trans. And so you have a church which historically in the past was even Reformed, Lutheran, Protestant, now celebrating a movement which glorifies the mutilation of bodies in order to make them pass for the opposite sex. And we have that in our own land. Just recently, the federal parliament passed Bill C-4 without one word of dissent from any of the MPs. And Bill C-4 celebrates the mutilation of bodies in order to pretend that a man is a woman and a woman is a man, a girl is a boy and a boy is a girl. In that building, upon, which, upon the stones of which are inscribed the very words of the Scripture, the Word of God, in that building, amongst those hundreds of MPs, many of whom confess to be Christians, a law was passed to celebrate a perversion which goes against God and His created ordinances. And this is not a new thing. For many years, we have had a government in Canada which is led by a party which requires every one of its MPs to embrace the wickedness of child sacrifice, of murdering innocent children in the wombs of their mother. You can't be a liberal MP unless you celebrate and promote abortion, the murder of 100,000 young children every year in our land. And our Liberal Party government is led by a man, the Prime Minister, who is baptized. He carries on his head the name of the Lord, <clears throat> the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He confesses to be a Christian. And yet, says the Scripture, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, we have a leader who demands from his party and tries to impose upon the country the wickedness of child sacrifice and child murder. And so, in a country which used to be majority Christian, and it's still seen on the very stones of our legislature, our federal legislature, we see this kind of thing happening as is described in our text. We think, and this is not a new thing, this is not a, a, a rare example. For years already, Canada has been going in this way. 
And for years, those who are calling themselves Christians have called on us to stop being bigots and stop being intolerant and to embrace the new society. And, 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 and it started way back. It started with the celebration of the twisting of marriage from what it used to be, from what it was ordained to be, from what it was created to be, a man and a woman for the purpose and the promise of the fruitful generation of new life. And our land has made that into a mockery of marriage by the definition of marriage as something which is barren and unfruitful. If the scripture describes marriage as a husband and a wife, a head and a body, then same-sex so-called marriage is like having two heads knit together or two bodies, a monstrosity, an infertile, a barren monstrosity. And how advanced this deceitful teaching is in our culture, in our society, and in the amongst God's people is proven by the fact that some of you right now are very uncomfortable with what I just said. We feel that we can hardly dare to speak of these things anymore in the church of God. Now, in such a context of deceitful spirits and teachings of demons and insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared, people who twist the created ordinance of God, Paul says to Timothy, you need to preach Christ. Don't get sidetracked by all kinds of movements which demand your allegiance. Tell God's people to look to Christ because the gospel of Christ are like spectacles through which we see and understand the world. We know Christ. We know the Father. We know the Creator. And we recognize words of truth which fit with the created order, the way God made things to be. And every false teaching, whether outside the church or in the church, at some point will clash. It will not fit with the created order. Every false and wicked teaching will in some way or another suppress or deny or pervert the order of God's creation. And when we look to Christ and we know him and we know the word of Christ, then we can see and perceive those perversions and those twistings and those suppressions. And that's why Paul says to Timothy as we go on in the chapter, if you put these things before the brothers, these things are all the things he's been saying from the beginning of the letter in which he's been pointing Timothy repeatedly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it came to a climax there at the end of chapter 3. These are the things you need to put before the brothers, the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do that, then you'll be a good servant. And here's the word, being trained, verse 6, in the words of the faith and the good doctrine you have followed. Being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Paul, throughout the New Testament and the scriptures in general, do not describe the faith as merely something emotional. Nowadays, people think of faith and they think of a warm, fuzzy feeling. Now, faith certainly does produce feelings, but faith is not, in the first place, a feeling. Faith is a knowledge and a conviction and a trust in an objective body of truth. The scripture speaks at one point of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, you can't pass on a warm, fuzzy feeling. 
but you can pass on a body of doctrine. And that's what it is. The faith is good doctrine. It's a f- good doctrine is a faithful explanation, a teaching of the truths of the faith. And so the Christian goes there. That's what we need. We need to be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that we follow. We ask ourselves in every situation when we're confronted with anything, we ask ourselves, what does God say? What does the Bible say? What does our faith confess? And that's against, verse 7, the silly, irreverent myths. Literally, if you look at verse 7 there, the word silly in Greek literally is old wives' tales. That's the Holy Spirit chose that word. So even though it's not so um, politically correct nowadays to talk like that, the Holy Spirit uses that word. Irreverent old wives' tales. Back then, it was this movement in the church of legalism and, and all kinds of other things mixed in with it. Eat this, don't eat that, don't get married. To be a good person, you've got to check off all these different things that you don't do. And, and they just sucked this right out of their thumb. It didn't come from the scriptures. It came from their uh, fevered imaginations. And today, we see a lot of ways in which, in the church, we are being told how to be a good Christian. And these pathologies are spread and magnified through social media. You have to think like this. You have to do this in order to be a good person, a good Christian. You've got to think this about Palestine and this about critical race theory and about socialism and about gender theory and about same-sex marriage. And the world will even tell us how to love our neighbor. In the last two years, the world has been instructing us, if you really love your neighbor, Christians, this is what you do. And we're saying, okay. The world's telling us how to be Christians. So every messianic movement, outside and inside of the church, tries to bring about a better world If you just follow the schedule, if you just follow our ideas, there will be more justice, there will be more righteousness, there will be more hope and more prosperity. Now, in verse 8, Paul says, listen, it is true. It is true that certain things can be or ought to be fixed or changed to make life and the body better. This applies to societies, this applies to individuals. But the Christian keeps perspective. The world will burn up one day. Our bodies will crumble into dust or be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the return of the Lord. We're not going to make our main priority trying to save our bodies, trying to preserve our health at all costs, or trying to bring about heaven on earth. That's not what we focus on. But we focus on godliness. That's verse 8 there. Because godliness, as opposed to bodily training, which is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, for now and for the future, for time and for eternity. And godliness, we know what that's all about. We read that at the end of chapter 3. The mystery of godliness is the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. 
Godliness is knowing Him, living in Him, living through Him, living for Him, and being conformed to Him. That is of value now and forever. And godliness then carries us through this life, through all of its tribulations, through all of its challenges, and leads us and moves us toward the future glory. Already here, already now, godliness leavens life and culture. It brings truth and justice and reconciliation, hope and life. It gives us wisdom to care for our bodies and to care and to be good stewards of the creation and to seek the good of society. But it starts with a heavenward focus. It starts with us seeking the things that are above, and then all these other things are added to us. Now, Paul says in verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and fully deserving of full acceptance. And when he says that throughout the New Testament, what he means is, is that what I've just said, or what I'm just about to say, is a catechism uh, saying that the, that the new believers, that the churches would memorize and, and, and hold and share with one another. So here, here it is. He just said it. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This was kind of a saying that the believers would memorize and share with one another. It is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The Christian's hope is not in this body, in this world, in this life. But the Christian's hope is in the future glory. And that's what we toil and strive for. Look at verse 10. That's why we toil, and the word toil means to work yourself to exhaustion. When you've been out in the field, I don't know if there's any farmers in the congregation, maybe not, but we can imagine the, the farmers haying in the time of haying when the, when, when the day's very long, and they're exhausted from their work at the end of the day. That kind of a toil. We toil, we work ourselves to exhaustion. We strive, and the word strive there is, in the Greek, the root word of our word agony or agonize. It is to really, really strive to wrestle, to fight, to put everything you have into it. Now, why do we toil and strive? Well, everything is focused on gaining godliness and growing in godliness. Why? Why do we toil and strive for godliness? To save ourselves? No, because God saves. God alone saves. So we don't toil and strive to save ourselves, but we toil and strive. Look at, look at what the apostle says there in verse 10. We have our hope set on the living God. So that's where our hope is for salvation. He is the savior of all people, also of us. So we don't toil and strive to save ourselves. We toil and strive to participate in the sovereign freely given salvation that he has granted us in Christ Jesus. Think of Noah and the ark. Imagine Noah not toiling and striving. Imagine Noah saying, you know what, I'm a good Christian, and if I was living in the New Testament times, I'll be a member of a good Reformed church, and I know that God alone saves. I'm not going to build this ark, because God does it all. So I'm going to sit here and wait for the flood, because the Lord saves. That's not what he did. That would have been wrong. He toiled and he strived to build that ark so that there could be a safe haven in the midst of the storm of God's judgment which was unleashed upon this evil and wicked and rebellious world. And we are ark builders. 
At the first flood, it was the church in that ark floating above the waters of God's judgment. At the last flood, it will not be a flood of water, it will be a flood of fire. And floating above that flood of fiery judgment at the end of times will be the ark of God's church and all who are in Christ. And we are building that ark. We're toiling and striving so that we might grow in godliness and our children might grow in godliness. And as some of them will profess their faith this afternoon, we will see them publicly commit to continuing on that road. And we toil and strive that others may come and know the Lord as well because He is the Savior of all people. He's the Savior of all people. Now, Paul is poking the Ephesians a little bit here, the unbelieving Ephesians. You look back there at the end of chapter 3, he talks about the, the church of the living God, and there in verse 10 of our chapter, he, he talks about the living God again, who is the Savior of all people. And he's purposely being polemical here, because Ephesus had a lot of statues, a lot of temples, a lot of idols, and one of the statues they had was a big statue of Julius Caesar, and he was worshipped as a god. He was dead by this time, but there was a big statue of him, and he was being worshipped. And underneath his statue was, a, was a, an inscription. And the inscription said this, the manifest God, universal savior of human life. That's what the Ephesians were worshiping, a man who was declared to be the manifest God, the universal savior of human life. And when Paul says the living God, the living God is the savior of all people, Paul is saying to Timothy in the Ephesian church, Caesar is dead. Caesar is dead, so what hope is there in him? We set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and anything. And anyone else only leads to death. And so he is the Savior for the world. And then he ends the verse, verse 10, especially of those who believe. Especially of those who believe. God from eternity chose his elect. In time he has the gospel preached to them and he gives them the gift of faith. And so... Paul continues in verse 11, command and teach these things. Timothy is working in a mission field. He's a young missionary. He's responsible for instructing and encouraging preachers and elders and deacons. And, and Paul notes that he's a young man. Let no one, verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth. He was probably in his 30s or perhaps his early 40s, a bit on the young side to be responsible for a whole field of different churches with lots of different office bearers and preachers. But godliness gives a certain gravitas and wisdom and discernment even to the young. And so Paul calls on him to be an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Timothy needs to know the Lord Jesus Christ before he can teach others about him. He needs to know the Lord Jesus in such a way that his life is transformed by the Lord Jesus so that people, when they see Timothy, they see that it is not him 
It is no longer Timothy that lives, but Christ who lives in him. And when we are transformed to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are examples in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Now, when people come into contact with you, you confess the name of the Lord Jesus. You confess that it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. You believe in God, and when we believe in God, then Jesus says, I and the Father will come and make our habitation in you. And so we are walking temples of God in this world. If the unbeliever wants to know God and, and come into contact with God, it is the temple of God, which is the church, and individually each believer, where they will come to meet Christ himself. And so when we interact with unbelievers, do they notice that? When they've talked with us, when we've interacted with them, when we've done business with them, when we've done some kind of a transaction with them, do they feel that they have been in the very presence of God? Do they see the Lord Jesus Christ in the way we think and the way we speak and the way we act? Well, that's a high calling to live in such a way that we reflect the very character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where are we going to get that from? Well, Paul explains in verse 13. He, he reminds Timothy of the source. Until I come, devote yourself to the main thing. Stick to your training regimen and tell others to stick to it too. And what is that training in godliness? What is that training to be more and more like Christ? It is the public reading of Scripture. It is the exhortation, and the word exhortation in the New Testament refers to the actual preaching of Scripture. And it is the teaching, the catechizing, the teaching ministry of the church. Those simple, ordinary means of grace are the way that God changes the world. You know, sometimes we, we want to change the world, we want to change society, we want to bring people to know the Lord Jesus, and we're tempted to think, well... How does this attract people to Jesus? Why not a band and smoke machines and some real cool entertainment and cut short the sermon and tell some jokes and make the unbelievers feel comfortable so that they want to come in and they want to be with us? And God says, no. That's not where it's at. The church changes the world by being faithful to its calling and by being faithful to those ordinary means of grace, the preaching, the teaching, and the sacraments. And that is the power which God uses to change dead sinners into living children of the living God. Now Paul says in verse 14, don't neglect the gift that you have. Timothy had a bunch of gifts. This was the time when the scriptures were not yet complete, so the Holy Spirit would give special extra gifts which no longer uh, he gives today, he had the gift of discerning spirits. But he also had a gift which does continue, it's an ordinary gift as well, the gift of teaching and preaching. This was recognized by the elders of the church who had called him, who had ordained him to this task. And that's a comfort. When God calls, he equips. When God calls you to any office, whether it's a special office in the church or any office in the home or family, society, God equips us for what we need to do. We do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what Paul says to Timothy. Do what you're called to do. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all 
me see your progress. Stick to your training. Stick to your regimen. Christ, Christ, Christ. The Word, the Word, the Word. Preaching, preaching, preaching. Teaching, teaching, teaching. Now, I want to stop here and make a very special application. When we come together on Sundays, we hear God speak to us. And he is using the word, and by the power of the Spirit, he is helping us in our training in godliness. And normally, if you train for something, you're, you're an Olympic athlete, and, or you're a golfer or whatever, you're a hockey player, you've done your training, then afterwards, you, you break down the training, or you, you, you figure out what have we learned. And what do we need to grow in? What do, we, not do we, what do we need to focus on? What do we do after a training session in godliness? We walk out into the hallway and we say, did you see the hockey game last night? How's work going? How is our mutual cousin doing over there? They moved from Ontario to BC. What's up with them? How often do we talk about the things of God? Sometimes there are some people in the church that we only see on Sundays. And we only have that one chance to really connect on the very deepest level that unites us. Because we have multiple layers of intense contact as Reformed believers. All kinds of connections that we have, social and work and family, are all kinds of layers. It's glorious. It's beautiful. But we can confuse those blessings with the real thing. And the real thing is the connection that we have in Christ. And it's a good thing to be deliberate, to train ourselves to encourage one another, to come out of church and say, what did the Lord say to you today? How has the Lord worked in your life in this past week? How is your progress in holiness in your life? What, how, what are your struggles? Is there something I can pray for for you? And that's important for all of us. But it's even more important for those who were not born and were not raised in our midst. Think about it. After church, we're all talking. And then somebody who is new to our community is standing there. And they don't know Uncle Bob from Carmen. They don't know who he is. And they don't know that they don't, send, they don't have children that go to school. So they know nothing about our school conversations. And they don't work at the various massive uh, companies where lots of people are reformed. They don't, they don't work there, so they just stand there. They have nothing. They don't understand what we're talking about. And they have nothing to offer. And so we're excluding them. What we're saying to them is like, you don't really belong. But if we come out and we talk about what unites us at the deepest level, if we talk about the Lord Jesus, if we talk about our faith, if we talk about growth and holiness, then suddenly not only can they understand, but even though they may be more recent members and newer to our community, they can contribute, they can talk, and they can testify to what the Lord is doing in their life. And then think about unbelievers that come in. How much less will they understand all of our little connections or massive, big connections that we have? And if we ask them, did you see the hockey game yesterday? Or we talk to them on a very superficial level, then this may be the only time we ever talk to these people before Judgment Day. And so this is an opportunity when an unbeliever walks in and participates in worship for us to get straight to the heart of the issue. Say, do you know the Lord Jesus? Are you a believer? No. What did you understand from the sermon? Is there something in your life that you're struggling with? Can we pray for you? 
And so training ourselves in godliness means being deliberate and intentional in what we do, what we think, and what we say. Paul says to, the, the, to Timothy, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Don't get distracted by all kinds of other things. Don't get distracted by the latest fads, whether you're for or against them, but watch your teaching. Watch your teaching and watch the teaching. Remember, he was responsible for a bunch of different churches and pastors on the mission field. This is the training regimen which brings life now and forever. Stick to it, Timothy. It means salvation for you, and it means salvation for those who listen to you. And if this is what God commands, then this is what we should want. Creation. We ought to come to church with an expectation, not that we are entertained or that what we like, uh, that, that our, our desires are fulfilled for the kind of liturgy or the kind of songs, the music, whatever. That's not what it's about. We don't care about those things. We want Jesus. We, we come to church and we say to the pastor, give us Christ. We are hungry for Christ. Give us the word. Don't give us the latest fads and arguments and don't entertain us, but give us Christ. And the elders, good elders are there to make sure that that happens, that the preacher does that. And if the preacher or the pulpit, whoever he is, doesn't do it, then the elders admonish. And if the preacher doesn't listen, then the elders get rid of preachers that don't want to preach about Christ. Thank God that we have in this church a faithful Christ-proclaiming pastor. That's a blessing we need to thank God for, and we need to pray for him continually. And so, believer, Timothy is called to be an example for the church. And all of us are called to follow that example, to keep the main thing the main thing. The Word of God, the gospel of Christ is the focus of our home. It is the focus of our life. It's not just a decorative element. It's not just an afterthought. But we thirst for life. We have, we have our hope set on the living God. We thirst for the public reading of Scripture, the preaching, the teaching. It is life to the believer. So much so that we are ready to accept suffering in the body and the disapproval of the ungodly and the loss of everything we have, our health, our life itself, in order to seek out faithful preaching and to hear the Word of God proclaimed. It is the center of your marriage if you're a believer. It is the center of your home. And of course, every Christian home, we, we say everyone is expected to develop their gifts and to become productive members of society and to be concerned about growing in the ability to live in this world. That's true. That's important. You study, you work, you develop your life. But all of this proceeds from and flows out of the main goal of the church and the family that each one of us would know the Lord Jesus Christ, that each one of us would love the Lord Jesus and serve him and obey him. That's what we teach our kids. And that's why when there's a choice between sports and entertainment or catechism, our kids know Christ comes first. We give up everything for him. We make that clear in even the smallest decisions in our life. And we exercise the greatest care and self-discipline, 
training ourselves in the word so that every thought is captive to Christ, every word is praise for Christ, every action is glory to Christ. And in this way, we are preparing ourselves for the life that never ends. We're going to sing uh, right now hymn number 69. And hymn number 69 reminds us of where it all ends up. Oh, may we wage the glorious strife and win like them the crown of life. Amen. Let's respond by singing hymn 69, 1, 2, and 3. <laughs>